Hey there, people. How are you? I hope you're doing great. As always, we are here with another episode to keep you in the loop. And today I have a great guest, Antonio, who is joining us from the beach uh, in his, you know, secure location in a sense, right? And uh, I think that, you know, this approach of uh, investing from the beach probably had some, uh, some impact on his uh, investing philosophy, right? So I would like to ask Antonio to give give us a little bit of a feedback how he started investing was behind his investing philosophy because uh, you know like this beach setting a little bit conjure the the philosophy of Warren Buffett right where he's you know uh, in Omaha away from the Wall Street so uh, is that one of the aspects uh, why uh, your investing style style is so different from the traditional finance Oh yeah, definitely. And just firstly, Andre, thank you so much for having me today. I'm very excited to be here with you. We've been uh, back and forth on Twitter for a bit, and, and it's amazing to finally have um, an in-depth conversation with you. And and yeah, I mean, my the the way the way I see investing is that you you never really know what the market is going to do uh, in the short term. So what what you can if if you want to obtain long-term replicable results that you can you know you can you can do one great investment after the other i think that you need to be looking at the stock market as a system in which you can buy pieces of businesses right and so what you have to do is really understand business and there are different businesses in the world and different sectors and stuff and there's just so many different angles to look at them from and i just find that being away from from a relatively hectic hectic lifestyle where i can sort of be in nature and and in this occasion be in the ocean and then during the winter be in the mountains and stuff sort of helps me obtain new fresh perspectives that um in the past have been statistically correct enough for me to make a living out of this right and and i just find that the oftentimes when i try and get close to to a more traditional setup i think that the edge disappears and then the more i go and do my own thing and spend time in nature and read different things and connect the dots the more i come up with ideas that i think are really uh and you know in the case of the ones i've, I've uh, the investments i've done in the past couple of years um you know the more likely i am to find ideas that are really set up for uh, for a good future and and that's how i started i i um i put half of my money in amd and half of my money in solar city which then got acquired by tesla and i always say this when i talk about it i got very very lucky uh but the you know whatever whatever percentage of the success can be attributed to um you know attributed to my thinking and and my and my vision 10 years down the line emerges from this lifestyle and from just thinking about businesses really deeply and thinking very long term which you know involves sort of seeing through the 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 quarterly wall street circus and so forth so that's very much my investment style and as you say it's it's pretty much based on on being in nature actually okay okay that's amazing and obviously that forms that uh, interesting i would say iconoclastic point of view so basically some of the topics uh, i discovered reading through your substack which uh, i will link down below so if uh, you know people listening definitely check it out there are lots of interesting ideas and i would like to you know a little bit look at the overall themes right because uh, basically all of your highest conviction ideas have something to do with uh, ether networks 
or the businesses that are highly complex, right? You really need to dig deeper several levels because there are often, you know, technology companies where it requires lots of understanding. Do you have some, uh, you know, engineering background or how come you are able to really dig so deep? Well, I just, I have a habit, which, which I think to, <laughs> actually to most people that have seen me doing it since I started college, it's, it's probably a bit weird, but I have this habit where every three to six months, maybe every year, I'll just go and change. Uh, I'll, go, I'll go and obsessively focus on a topic and study it, and then I'll just drop it and move on to the next. So in, in the past 10 years, I've been doing that with countless stuff, right? And I'm not an engineer by training, um, although, you know, I do have a master's in computer science, which is a bit weird because... I was an entrepreneur earlier earlier on in my career, and then I was sort of I learned a lot from the from the engineers that were uh, working with me, and then I learned how to code and stuff. And so I I actually found my way back into uni for a more formal training. But actually, my my training, my undergrad per se, is business, right? So what I do is I just study a lot of unrelated topics that I randomly develop passions for, and I pursue them deeply and very wide, and then I just come out of them. And I, and I gradually connect them in an ecosystem of topics that I've pursued in the past. Right? And so when I look at businesses, I'm, I'm looking at them as kind of multi-dimensional puzzles. And I'm, I'm bridging together stuff like history, psychology, physics, chemistry, uh, math, statistics, social sciences, uh, and then also all, all sorts of subfields within these domains and more domains that I'm not even talking about. And so what I come up with is just different um, qualitative points of views that um, allow me to see an asset in question in a way that the market is not seeing it and then hopefully be right about it. And then once I do find some, an asset that I consider the market is not seeing correctly and that I, I consider I may be seeing correctly from a qualitative standpoint, I sort of look for arbitrage situations in which I, I see an asymmetric situation in which... If my, if my um, qualitative take on the business is correct, then the upside is immense. And if it's wrong, which, you know, I'm going to be wrong plenty of times, then the downside is capped. And so it's what I look for is these situations in which the market is overly depressed about something and is not understanding it correctly because it's failing to look at the asset from this multidimensional point of view. And, and you know, this is companies like Spotify, companies like BlackBerry, companies like Amaris, stuff like this. And... And just taking a step back, when I talk about studying different fields and so forth, the thing that underpins my thesis always is understanding where humanity comes from and where it's heading. Because there's this mental model that I have, and I think this is really valuable for the audience, which is the bets you take in life are basically a direct expression of your beliefs. So if you believe humanity is, um, you know, advances fundamentally in a certain way, and you want to make money and you want to make investments, you're probably going to thread along that line, right? So I actually spend a lot of time making sure that I really understand what humanity is really about. And so what humanity is about in the, uh, in the material wealth aspect of things, because the, the whole interior uh, introspective domain of humankind gets very complicated and that's a whole different topic. But in terms of actually generating wealth, what humans do is we unlock new ways of configuring atoms and putting them together to yield some kind of beneficial arrangement, right? So we, through history, we've just been 
unlocking new novel ways of putting together the building blocks of the universe to, to do stuff that just drives our economy forward and that liberates us from material constraints, right? And just to give you an example that's actually very relevant, and very contemporaneous, you have semiconductors. And, you know, with semiconductors, we actually began to get down to the electron level. So now it's no longer about atoms, it's about electrons. But we're just basically configuring these building blocks in a way that, that we can do useful stuff with it. And what does useful stuff mean for humanity? Again, in the, in the material wealth side of things, it's about processing information. So we just continuously compute, traditionally with our brains and now with computers, new ways to put atoms together. So with the advent of semiconductors, we kind of turned that information game into the information of information games. So it's like now we've automated this, this um, core wealth creation process. And so the investments that I talk about um, when I write very much tap into this matrix, right? So if you see something like Spotify, for instance, most people will see it as a music app, but I actually see it as a, it's basically a platform that's advancing the way information gets packaged and shared because for, you know, possibly millions of years, although history doesn't date back as much, we've been sharing information primarily through spoken language. But if you think about it, in the internet, this media format has been left behind. And so it's mostly text, images, and video now, right? But Spotify, although it looks like um, a music app, it's actually an incredibly powerful company. It's a very, very sticky product. It has a phenomenal culture, which, which is, you know, we'll discuss this level of depth. Because I think that culture is actually a company's most fundamental asset. But it's not just that. It's basically an audio network in which nodes either emit or consume audio files. And as the company is adding new verticals, and it's moving from music to podcast to now audiobooks and eventually new sports and education, it's basically accelerating the way that humans can change, can, um, can exchange information. Because with the advent of the internet, it's true that the... the, the um, the sharing of information has been accelerated, but we have to look at a screen. And then with audio, this fundamentally changes. So now someone that's maybe listening to this podcast doesn't have to be looking at a screen. This person is learning about these mental models that I'm sharing, but uh, he, she can be at the supermarket going for a run, can be just chilling at the beach with family. So Spotify is actually, it's actually a quantum leap in terms of the amount of information that a human can share or consume right at a default state of just natural activity that's not looking at a screen and and you know palantir is the same palantir is actually a very similar thesis in that what palantir does is it enables companies to deploy a digital twin which is actually a sort of information copy of the analog operations of a given company so it's basically what, what a company does is figure new ways to to put atoms together and yield beneficial outcomes Right. So what a company is, is actually an optimization function. You have to minimize the inputs and maximize the outputs. So when you put a digital twin into it, you're basically gathering all this information that otherwise humans wouldn't be doing with our um, biological brains. And then we're just figuring what levels to pull, when and how, to what degree, in order to optimize this function and minimize the inputs, maximize the outputs. So it's, all humanity does is actually just process information. And you actually see this in the labor, in, in the, um, labor market. The humans that get paid more are actually the ones that can obtain more leverage by simply processing information and having judgment be the core asset. So all the companies that I, or actually most of the 
companies that I talk about tap into this matrix. It's about my belief of where humanity is coming from and where we're actually going and what's the core wealth generation mechanism. Yeah, definitely. And that's an amazing insight because the way I see it, you are writing some of these big trends that are happening, obviously, in the society. But maybe, uh, you know, I definitely agree with uh, what you said. But the thing that I'm having a little bit problem with considering the future and trying to estimate the future is always the time horizon, right? Because uh, what I often see around us is that, you know, the technology is there, but sometimes, you know, the the, the rate of adoption, right? People are often resisting the change. I've seen it often in, for example, the building sector, which is one of the least digitalized. So with your thesis, considering, let's say, Palantir, Spotify, uh, how do you estimate the, the rate of uh, adoption or the rate of uh, basically how the future is moving? Is it moving, you know, faster or how do you estimate that? That's an amazing question, Andre. That's something that I ask myself daily. And, and the truth is, as you say, that most of the world isn't digitalized. So when we talk about these investments, we're actually talking about a very small corner of the human universe and the, long, the, the runway ahead is very large. But I think you just have to get a sense of where information really is driving GDP and where novel techniques around information are actually driving GDP. So when people talk about AI and they talk about blockchain and stuff, it always comes down to, you know, where have we generated incremental wealth? And it's actually, this is only happening in very abstract planes in the economy yet. Uh, so, you know, talking about digital twins with talent here, who's going to deploy a digital twin? Well, actually just the top companies in the planet and the companies that aspire to be the top companies in the planet. So, so you know, all of my thesis are in very early stages. And even when you look at semiconductors, which as I said, is how I began my investment journey, the the amount of computation we require today is exponentially larger than the one we did 10 years ago but what's going to happen in the next 10 years is it's going to exponentiate again and we don't know many of the applications but as i'm saying what you can do is thread thread you can sort of thread this fine line that goes that comes from you know the past and moves into the future it's well what are humans going to be doing in five years time well this is what's going to happen Audio is going to now um, it's going to be in five years time a mainstream um, media format, and it's going to be as ubiquitous as text and images and video. And this is going to happen maybe in the next five years, maybe in between five to ten, but it's going to happen in this period. In the next ten years, uh, we're going to be making stuff through biology, and in the next ten years, the top companies in the planet are going to be deploying and using digital twins. And actually, most of the value of these companies is going to come from the information and the predictions that can be made from these digital twins. But, you know, you just you just have to look at who these companies were selling to. What is the pace at which they are selling this product? Is it going up? Is it going down? And as I'm saying, the truth is that the world is still very far away from being totally digitalized. And we're just talking about a little corner uh, of the human universe. But again, it just comes down to price. Are you buying this? Are you buying these companies at a price that implies perfection for the next 10 years? Or are you buying them as I think we have an opportunity to do now at a, at a price that implies, hey, these technologies are not going anywhere. So it, it's just to, just to answer your question, it's, it's about making up your own mind about where you think these technologies are, technologies are going realistically. But then it's very much so and perhaps even more so about the price. If the price um, 
at which these assets are being sold is highly pessimistic, then your estimations do not have to be as accurate. And that's where, mm -hmm. where I like to swim in the public markets. I like to have my beliefs, which I lay out extensively on my Substack. And then I just, I like to have a lot, a big margin of safety, right? And so if I do, if, if I do manage to express a belief that I think is correct in an asymmetric uh, investment opportunity, then I'm very much relaxed because I know that my estimations don't have to be so accurate. And, and you know, I, I think that operating with this model is probably optimal in terms of investing in technology, in technology because you can't really predict what's going to happen when. All you can look at is, hey, what are humans really trying to do? Where are we heading? And then how does this technology unlock value today? And how is it likely to do so in the next five years? Okay, perfect, perfect. So that sounds like you have a very long-term horizon, right? Does that mean that you are basically planning to keep your positions as they are unless anything changed for, you know, maybe five plus years? Are you thinking about it in these terms from more of the in investment perspective, right? Obviously, we all want to make money, grow our portfolios. Is that the case? Yeah, very much so. And that's that's how I got started with my investing journey. And I'll tell you something I learned, Andre, which is if you take both losses and wins too much at heart, then this will stop your returns if you are correct. Because say, for instance, I always talk about this. In the first two years of my MD investment, the, the value of my investment went down by 75% plus. And then after that, it just began to skyrocket. But if I had paid too much attention to the price and too much attention to the quarterly mm -hmm. um, earning reports and, and the analyst fluctuations around these reports and stuff, I would have sold probably you know in the first year, in the first two years, and then even more so after it started going up. So imagine the temptation of selling something when it goes fourfold. And then when it goes eightfold, mm -hmm. when it goes tenfold. But actually, this temptation to sell both at a loss when it's going down and it's very, very depressing and when it's going up and it's very euphoric kind of disappears when you're actually focusing on the fundamentals. I think that too often when people look at companies, they're sort of looking at it in a vacuum. And so, for instance, the semiconductors, these narratives we've had in the past couple of years, like, hey, narrative um, – coming up and it's this time it's going to be a semiconductor shortage so therefore because this analyst reviews the price target of AMD and Nvidia down you have to sell you should because it's 20% above the target but none of that really makes sense if again you understand what humanity's core wealth generation process is and how semiconductors tap into that and then how these companies excel at bringing people together to work in a specific way to produce these assets these products that actually drive humanity forward and are going to continue to do it despite the uh, quarterly or biannual or annual or whatever market fluctuations, right? So I think that when you invest in technology and, and pretty much any investment, but in technology, which is what I focus on, a long-term horizon is absolutely key. And these trends don't fluctuate near, nearly as much as humans do because we need to pay bills. It's very tough. Uh, we, have, we operate in the analog space and we have all these primal needs. But technology and history and stuff doesn't evolve like this. All these trends that I'm talking about, about making stuff with biology, uh, aka amorous, digital twins, semiconductors, audio becoming a mainstream uh, media format in the internet and stuff, this is happening. But say that you know maybe something horrible could happen in the world in the next two or three years where the world sort of shuts down again, like a pandemic. I'm hoping not. But say humanity, the, our history is full of wars, it's full of pandemics, it's full of awful stuff right and this 
temporarily slows down progress. But we always come, we always come out the other side uh, stronger, and people continue to innovate and stuff. So you may think, hey, you know, in two years I'm gonna obtain a wonderful return because I think Palantir is gonna speed up sales, the contribution margin is gonna go up, it's gonna become a platform, and so forth. Yeah, but something in between could happen that's not in your hands and that it's just a little blip in history but it's going to seem like something terrible but you know it's i think you have to you have to match your investment horizons to the reality that we can observe from history it just things take time and a year is a very short period of time and so is five years mm -hmm. perfect perfect and I, I guess i had a little bit similar experience right when i started investing in tesla back in 2017 18 where basically I was buying at like a price split uh, 300 per share and it dropped back to, to 200. And I just fo focus on, on the engineering, basically saw the, the progress the engineers are making, right? In terms of the, the for example, electrical wire, wiring. And I just kept buying regardless of these price fluctuations. So I definitely agree that, you know, like the the innovation is is moving in very, uh unorganized manner right sometimes it, it can jump very quickly and move forward sometimes it, it gets stifled by some you know short-term headwinds but uh, i have one more question that uh, basically a little bit sprung up in my mind and that's the difference between innovation in the physical world and in the digital world right because uh, actually peter Thiel is talking about this that uh, innovation in the physical world is always much harder because there is lots of regulation in terms of like the bureaucracy and everything and it's just much more complex to put atoms together compared to uh, compared to bits right lots of innovation over the past 10 15 years has been in in social media uh, where you know all of the social networks facebook google where it seems like it's much easier to innovate since it's basically unregulated what would be your take on this so what's happening is Historically, we've always um, produced stuff in the analog world, and only recently we've begun to pass these productions into the digital space. And even more recently, we've begun to produce things in the digital space, and it has been staying there. Right. So an example of that is social media. All the content stays there, and it has some repercussion in the physical world, but it inhabits mostly the digital space. What happens as we increase our capacity to compute information, so going back to the idea of unlocking new ways to put atoms together and manage electrons uh, in this day and age, what happens is we are increasingly able to simulate stuff, so create products and, and basically unlock these new configurations in the digital space and then download them into the analog. So basically our economy goes from being trial and error, which is very costly in the analog space and then production to trial and error and production in the digital digital space and then downloading that into the analog space. So just to give you an example, the pharma industry is about yielding molecules or combinations of molecules with a certain shape that therefore once introduced in the human proteome serve a specific function and can treat a specific illness right so mm -hmm. a biological entity such as a human is basically made of proteins and what determines the function of each protein is the shape so when you put a drug in with a certain shape it's going to do a specific thing inside the body so the farm industry is all about trial and error to find a molecule or a combination of them that will do 
perform a desired output, right? So that's actually very costly. But once we're able to say, hey, we understand what genetic code is going to translate into what shape, then this sort of inverts the model. Because then we're like, well, if we can understand a specific condition at a molecular level, we understand what is happening specifically, which is always like, hey, you know, this shape is slightly off or there's some error um, in the translation process inside a specific human so that this protein, which should have this shape, now actually has this one, right? So if we're able to predict exactly what shape we need to put into a body, then it inverts the model. It's no longer trial and error. We just go back to our computers and say, hey, this is the shape I want. So then the computer comes back with a specific genetic code, and then we just print that. And so it inverts the model. And that's that's happening in the pharma industry for sure. It's I mean, it's not here yet. It's going to happen over the next 10, 20 years. But it's happening all over the industry. And actually, if you look at Tesla, and I have a deep dive on this in my Substack. One of the things, actually the fundamental thing that um, analysts, uh, traditional analysts are not understanding is that this company is just getting very good at making stuff. So th the value of the company is obviously the products that it has created, which is, um, you know, it's obviously boosted the company and stuff. It's their ability to create stuff. And their ability to create stuff comes from one very simple thing, which is them continuously decreasing the cost of change. And they do this by employing software and just by iterating and actually building stuff in the digital space and then downloading it into the analog. So they are actually the company that's able to pass things into production the quickest, stemming from specific tests and so forth. So whilst, for instance, VW or any company in the world that makes anything is still in production, um, still is um, running tests and stuff, Tesla is basically way ahead. And, and this is made possible by this trend and it's made possible by computation. So just to, to give the audience some context, this connects very nicely with the idea of unlocking new ways to configure atoms by processing information. All you're literally doing is decreasing the cost of change, which means running tests in the digital space instead of actually spending money in the analog space, which is slower and it's boring and it's frustrating and stuff to say, hey, we're gonna add this configuration to the car because we tested it and it works and we know our customers like it. And it's literally just that. A car is just atoms being put together. So I hope that kind of makes sense. And, and this is something that we're gonna see across many industries. And the truth is that actually, as you were saying, most of the industries in the world are very far from being totally digitized. So the, the runway ahead is very large. But this is why I always, uh, this is why my, my semiconductor long pieces remains very much intact. Because everything we do in our economy to create wealth is just processing information. And as you say, we're doing this increasingly in the, in the digital space and then downloading it into the analog. Okay, perfect. So basically what you're saying is that uh, the, the top companies uh, such as Tesla are basically now using the, the digital world to basically hypercharge the changes in the, in the physical world. Is that correct? Yeah, correct. I mean, if... if if the wealth creation process is about putting atoms together in new ways, then why would you actually spend time putting the atoms together instead of just simulating that in the digital space? So that, that is, that is what's mm -hmm. actually, and going back to my, my answer about um, ter, um, investment prices and stuff, that's actually what's going to drive GDP the most in the next couple of decades, which is just this, this, whole, this whole metaverse fad is, is really just 
the I think it's humanity's destiny, not not in Mark Zuckerberg's sense of you being in there, you know, just in, in some sort of walled garden of his. It's about processing information. And you know, I, I always I talk about this, and I think it's very abstract, but I hope I'm making it clear. Yeah, definitely, and uh, that's also maybe part of the thesis for for Palantir for many people, right? Because Palantir is also trying to basically improve the physical reality, working with lots of uh, industrial companies, energy companies. Is that the similar case to to Tesla? Yeah. Um, so, so actually, and and going back to Tesla, what Tesla does to decrease the cost of change is just simulate stuff. But the way they simulate stuff, what actually enables them to iterate very fast is uh, as an employee, when you walk through the door, you're basically given a smartphone and it has 12 different apps on it. And today it may have more or less. This may have changed. But last time I checked, there was 12. And you basically get real time information about what's happening across the company. And as an employee, you make most of your money through stock options and you're not told what to do. You're just given the smartphone. You're given the stock options. And then you, with your skills and your judgment, have to see what's happening across the board in the company and then you choose where to apply your skills so these 12 apps are actually digital twins right they're just processing and sharing across um, the organization real-time information about what's happening so that's what palantir does palantir literally deploys that software into firms and it has way more applications than just letting employees know what's going on real time and letting them choose what to do but it's it's all about information so I, I use this example in my Palantir deep dive. If you're a company that makes wooden chairs, you basically want to minimize the inputs and you want to maximize the outputs. So you, just in a very simple world in which a company has one factory and say the only raw input is wood, you want to buy the least amount of wood to output the most amount of chairs. So to do that, you're going to be basically figuring out different shapes, different ways to put wood together in order to optimize the use of wood. And a human can do that. You and I could go into a factory and just use our eyes and use our brains and see how to optimize that. We're, we're missing out on so much information and so many potential configurations. And then if you sort of take that company out of a vacuum and then you put it into a real world where, you know, the company maybe has 10 different factories and then there's shortages and prices go up and prices go down and, and maybe prices go up because there's so many factors that a human doesn't understand or doesn't totally correlate to to the actual price fluctuations like hey when it rains here and when there's traffic in this other part of the planet maybe this correlates to higher prices so i think a computer mm -hmm. and a digital twin is going to be picking up all this information and again it's just going to be letting humans know what is the what are the best levers to pull when and to what degree in order to optimize this this function that i'm talking about so it's it's kind of like it's a fine thread that I'm talking about, right? So humans, all we do is process information. And then we see that the companies that have absolutely skyrocketed in the past 10 to 20 years, what did they all do? They all just enable humans to process information that little bit better. And then that somehow creates a moat because of course, when we talk about information inside an information highway, this generates a kind of, um, I'm just gonna get some sunscreen on me. <laughs> this generates a kind of moat which doesn't apply to the analog space because things, in the digital space exponentiate in a way that it doesn't in the analog space. So the, the thing with Palantir and my main concern actually is that it's such a powerful thing that it can take away your business. So whatever your business is, mm -hmm. if you deploy a digital twin successfully, 
in not too much time, the most valuable thing about your business, it's obviously the people and it's the culture, which we can talk about this if you want. And I always talk about this extensively, but it's also the, just all this information that would enable a software or, or perhaps a software in combination with humans to figure out how to optimize that business. That's the most valuable thing about businesses today, which is that proprietary information that enables you to put atoms together in a more efficient way than otherwise. Right, so this is this is the fine thread that that humanity has been pulling along through history, and that's going to continue to propel us forward. Yeah, definitely. And uh, you obviously a little bit touched upon the the culture, which uh, in my mind brings the question: Okay, now we talked about uh, let's say the two companies that are using all these principles to the highest extent: Palantir, Tesla. Uh, so maybe what's what's the biggest uh, threat to innovation or why why isn't all companies are doing it this way well they're not doing it this way firstly because it's very hard and uh you know this it just requires such an amount of talent and and attitude so for instance i'm in spain now and i can tell you that if if i try to sell a digital twin to the average company they just look at me like hey you know go take a hike because they don't have these mental models that i'm talking about and they're actually quite ubiquitous in companies like the United States and amongst innovators that are online, like most of the people that I interact with and that you interact with, including yourself, uh, have these mental models and they're just not actually that common. So it, it sort of links nicely with the idea of time horizons and about there being a long runway or not. Most humans don't think in this way. And I tweeted about this yesterday. 99% of the people that I interact with offline, because by the way, online it's zero, uh, don't um, don't understand the noosphere. They, they don't understand the increasing value of judgment as we move into an era of automation. And again, it's not like everything today is automated, but just as it increasingly gets automated, the most important important thing is judgment. But it requires having these mental models, and it requires having capital and culture. And so most companies don't have the culture to do this. And because if if you sort of think about what a company is. And I talked about the abstraction of the optimization function. Another one is it's mostly just people coming together to do stuff. And, and they, they do stuff in a specific way, and that is culture. And, and oftentimes the culture of a company determines its fate, like the personality of a given human determines his, her fate in mm -hmm. a certain way. And there's many factors, of course. It's not like it's a straight line, but it's a very strong leading indicator. And so when you look at most firms, these the the way people work is very hierarchical and it sort of tends to resemble the culture of the country the company is in and so i can tell you that working for instance at microsoft in ireland has nothing to do with working at microsoft in spain because mm -hmm. the culture is different and people are going to expect you to be sitting in your chair until 9 p.m regardless of whether you're actually doing anything productive from 3 p.m to 9 p.m or not it's about does your boss leave before you or not? Because you can't leave before your boss, right? So just that's kind of a little qualitative story to, to bring home the point that the way people work determines the fate of a company. And so when you talk about something like a digital twin in which information flows transparently and then people can move up and down and left to the right and it's all about your skills and about your actual merit, then that is kind of like acid to most of the corporate corporate cultures, right? So if it's, it's incredible that if you go to the average company and install one of these softwares, it's gonna 
upset a lot of people. So it requires cultures that are open, that are innovative, that are forward-looking, that are transparent, that are highly iterative, uh, open to failure, uh, open to discuss failure, which is something that's fascinating in most industries, like the medical industry, for instance, you mm -hmm. cannot discuss failure. So just information doesn't flow. In most corporate cultures, information doesn't flow. When a digital twin comes online, information flows like nothing you've seen and it dissolves the culture. So people don't want to get dissolved and therefore they resist this move. Mm -hmm. so, so in a sense, do you think the technology is almost moving too fast for the majority of, of people to, to adopt it? Well, it always is. Um, it, it always is, but it, it takes leaders to initially say, hey, this is this is a new company. This is what we're going to do. And this is how it's going to work. So it, it you, you can't sort of, if you look at the way GE, General Electric, fell uh, after all these amazing years with Jack Welch, it, it was because of the culture, right? It was because of very low accountability, uh, very opaque information flow. And, and again, you can, link the, you can link this back to the idea of humans processing information to put atoms together, right? Where information doesn't flow, humans can't figure out ways to put atoms together better than the competitors. So then the company goes down, which is what happened to G essentially. And so if, if you were to walk into that company just after Jack Welch left and you tried to change the culture, you, you just couldn't because it's very, very deeply ingrained. And I think as investors, when we look at companies from the outside, we get the feeling that they are sort of orderly uh, devices that are predictable in a quarterly basis and stuff. But the more I look at it and putting this together with my entrepreneurial experiences, the companies are always on fire. They're just always on fire. They're always, there's, there's always some emergency going down, which seems like the end of the world. And oftentimes, you know, the bigger the company gets, there are many of these emergencies at the same time. So you just, you just can't change your culture in a way that fundamentally menaces the people that participate in it. So it, actually, most of the companies that we've seen take off in the past 10 to 20 years, and that I think are going to take off in the next 10 to 20, just have fundamentally radically different cultures, and not in a buzzword sense of the word, they actually have it. And you can sense this. You, you can talk to people that work at the company, you can listen to management, you can just see the way it functions, you can see all these qualitative data points, And you can see cultures that are fundamentally primed to succeed in the modern world. And then just so many cultures that are not. Yeah, definitely. I see culture is obviously super important. And, and I guess sometimes in a, those huge companies, corporations, there is also lots of almost like fighting inside, right? Between the different departments. Uh, you know, kind of different uh, groups inside the company, right? So sometimes you see that the companies are almost like uh, eaten from, from the inside. Uh, correct. Is that the case that you've tried to outline? Yeah, correct. So there's actually a wonderful book, Andre, written by Safi Bakal, if I'm pronouncing this correctly. And it's called Loon Shots. And Safi talks about this model and, and it actually goes beyond um, retribution right but it, it's basically about in a company you have innovators and then you have executors okay mm -hmm. so you, the innovators are going to be creative people they're going to be artists they're, they're going to be coming up with the ideas most of them very silly but some of them very good and then you have the executors that are gonna just be focused on executing they have less creativity they have they're more prone to sort of um you know feet on the ground and stuff and you actually need both in a company 
But what happens is that in practice, these two groups of people tend to tend to not admire each other, right? So the, the executors tend to think that creatives are just lunatic people and perhaps too idealist. And then the creatives tend to look at the executors as just boring people that don't get anything. And I'm using my own words on the fly and stuff, but this is this kind of summarizes what happens at a lot of companies. So in order for innovation to thrive, first you need the ideas. You need the ideas to work. So you need to iterate and try them and experiment them. But then you actually need the executors to franchise an idea, to scale it up and to run operations. So you need the two groups of people to work in sync. Now, as I was explaining, by default, there's a kind of non-admiration going on. So every, every good culture, what they do is uh, they, they get these two groups of people to work in sync. So the idea is that if you can, just set, if you can put creatives aside in a way that they are safe, and they are free to experiment and have the information get to executors and have this information go back and forth, then that's a sort of, that's an initially satisfactory organizational culture. Then the most important thing beyond that is how do you get people rewarded? And so there's two kinds of rewards in companies, which is one status driven, and then the other one is merit driven. So status driven is when you have a company with a big corporate ladder that, that, that you can climb, say, hey, if you make it to VP, we'll double your salary. If, the, if you then make it to whatever is after that, then we'll triple it. And then there's this, this sort of this very big ladder with incremental salary jumps and stuff. That's status driven in that you have a very big incentive to be nice to the people, to your bosses, and just sort of get very political, right? And conversely, you have the other one, which we see present in companies like Palantir, Tesla, Spotify, and so forth, which is meritocratic, which is, hey, you're not actually going to make most of your money through your salary. You're actually going to make it through stock options. And then you have the freedom to move up and down, left and right. There's not really that much of a ladder that you can go up or down mm -hmm. to actually focus on driving results that will then inflate um, fundamentally and healthily the value of your stock options. So when you see a company that goes too, too far down the status-driven ladder, then information stops flowing because there's no real incentive to share bad news. It's only good news because all you want to do is sound great. And you want to be respected by the people above you and below you, and it's all status-driven. So then information stops flowing, iteration decreases. And so going back to the idea of an, of an optimization function, it's just so much harder to minimize the inputs and maximize the outputs. Because basically what you have people you have is people inside the structure just overriding it and free writing it, right? So mm -hmm. when you go to the, to the other extreme of this aspect is, hey, most people don't make most of their money through their salaries. They make it through stock options. They have the freedom, as I was saying, to move around the company and apply the, the, the skills where they want to. And so this is Tesla, this is Spotify, this is Palantir. And, and, and the, the majority of the companies in the planet are actually predominantly status-driven. And that's why the other day I made a tweet, which I said 90% of work is not actually about work. It's about signaling because most people and the more people I meet and so forth, most people, all they do is signal at work because it's status driven. Yeah, definitely. And I agree with the statement com completely. There is, a, you know, obviously lots of politics that that's actually 
taking away from from creating the, the actual value so how does this culture uh, maybe touch uh, with uh, one of your different high conviction plays which is uh, blackberry that's what i would like to touch upon now because that's obviously a company that uh, has a long history right and it seems like now it's in the place where they reinvented themselves and and you believe that there is a bright future could you a little bit unpack that also in uh, from that perspective of the culture and what do you see ahead of blackberry with blackberry there's not actually much information about the culture funnily enough what it is is it's a very low hype company and it's a company uh which has position positioned itself for the auto sector and it basically has inserted this trojan horse uh which i think is, is positioned to dominate this sector in, in the coming 10 to 20 years so basically they have a um operating system which is actually a real-time operating system in that real-time operating systems are designed to absolutely function when they have to so they're the kind of operating system you use in devices that just can't go wrong like spaceships like airplanes like cars like stuff that when it goes wrong things go really really wrong right so these guys have today if i'm not mistaken 215 million cars on the road out of uh i believe 1.2 billion in total in the planet with their operating system installed and running and so going back to the idea of information and uh humans um unlocking new ways to configure um atoms and so forth with cars it's no different the way a human drives a car is just processing visual and audio stimuli and then just um responding um respectively right so when when it comes to information how that applies to this if you just install an operating system like tesla does and you pick up these audio and visual stimuli and you train uh, a neural network to process it and respond correctly then you have self-driving cars but actually before that what happens is you have to connect the car and a car just generates so much information that a human today driving in an analog matter, uh, manner is not picking up. So the wheels, the, the, the oil, the engine, the, the seats, the, the air conditioning, the music, everything is just generating information because it's functioning as the human is using the car. And there's actually so much we can predict by getting this information and um, learning to correlate it to outcomes. Right? So the basis of that is an operating system. And the fundamental thing with BlackBerry that people don't understand is firstly that it's actually a cybersecurity company. And, and you know, it goes beyond QNX. They actually have a very good um, unified endpoint management software. But fundamentally with cars is that they make money per unit of the operating system that they sell. And so this is not actually a very good, um, um, this is not a very good unit economic scheme. But once you actually turn the car into a connected device, there's so many ways to generate streams of revenue by adding value to the end users and to the OEMs that actually sell the cars and today make most of their money selling cars. <clears throat> that actually, it, look, seen from this point of view, basically BlackBerry is one of the most undervalued tech platforms in the world. I mean, if you look at something like Netflix, um, I don't know actually the exact number of subscribers that they have, but actually BlackBerry has about as much, if I'm, if I'm correct, it's just they're monetizing these users much less. But once they do, then this is going to transform into a very high margin, very profitable company. Mm -hmm. so, so basically you're saying that the, the BlackBerry is kind of sitting on a, on a very good nest that they just need to utilize at this point. Yeah, correct. And this nest actually takes a very long time to develop. 
And quarterly, what happens is they keep announcing design wins. So saying, hey, you know, Honda decided to add us. This other company decided to add us. And then people are not seeing that in the revenue yet. But the thing is, how often do you buy a car? I know, for mm-hmm. instance, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep my car for 10 years. And so is the <laughs> average person on the planet, too. Right. So when you when you um, when BlackBerry makes a design win, this actually takes a long time to translate into production. And they only make mm-hmm. money when a car goes into production with their software. So basically, the fundamental thing to understand about BlackBerry is that everything is going to get connected in the next 10 to 20 years. And then the most important thing is, can you trust the network or not? Because once everything gets connected, the device is basically going to behave in a in a specific way, depending on the information it receives. So if you can't trust the network, you just can't trust the device. Conversely, if you can absolutely trust the network, then the device is safe and it can operate freely in our economy, right? So if the analogy today is, is almost water, actually. If, if humans, humans need water to live, right? But if we can't trust mm-hmm. our water network, then our whole society crumbles. And this actually happens with food but as well, but let's just stay with water, right? So water is essential. Today, <clears throat> we see data being increasingly important. But as we were saying about Palantir, most companies don't operate digital prints. Uh, we're talking now through this app, for instance, and you may be talking to people through WhatsApp, but none of that is of vital importance. If the network gets compromised, then your messages may get exposed and so forth, but it's not absolutely vital. But the moment that say, the way your car functions depends on the, on the quality and the health of the network. Uh, and just different devices that, that we've invented over the past uh, couple hundred years that actually enable modern life. If they all begin to depend on the health of the network, then the health of the network is, becomes as important as water, right? And, and so that's the future that this company is positioned for. Uh, and, and just to give the audience some context, specifically so in the auto sector, which is, it's going to continue to be very, very important. And I have a mm-hmm. deep dive on this. You can, you can go check out the details on that. Yeah, definitely check the deep dive. I will link the Substack in the description. It's going to be the first link, so check it out. Uh, and so you're basically saying that obviously the, uh, the automotive industry is, is lagging uh, a lot, right? Uh, until the, the fleets are replaced, the electric vehicles are coming. So you're basically saying that the BlackBerry now is, you know, being early into what is going to happen in the next maybe five years. Again, that that long-term principle, correct? Yeah, yeah, very much early. It's it's an industry that it's pretty much like any other industry in the planet, apart from the actual technology industry. It's 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 sort of lagging and 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 just going back to the idea about Tesla making stuff. Making stuff is really really hard, and and these guys make stuff that uh, can save or take lives which is cars right so it's very very difficult to actually innovate in this space and 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 so what what i think blackberry is doing is correct because you can't really just walk up to the industry and say wait we're gonna connect you guys and we're gonna radically transform the way a car um adds value and the way it's operated right so today you just jump into a car and and there's, there's no information being processed with a connected car, all the information is processed. So then you can just throw that, quote unquote, into a neural network. And then you get all these insights, which changes the way you interact with a car. And just, it, it literally changes what a car is. 
it, it becomes a smartphone with wheels. But you can't just walk up to the industry and say, hey, we're going to do this overnight. What you have to do is approach them and add value in a way to them that today is chewable. They need to be able to chew it. Right? So, so basically, the trend that has enabled this is it's just aggregating electronic control units inside a car. So a car has all these electric circuits that control different bits. So it's actually just simpler nowadays to put that all together and just have the car depend on this aggregated uh, domain control. So this, this is what has given way to, to operating systems inside cars, right? So it's, but it's actually, as I talked about it, it's a Trojan mm -hmm. horse because then this only gets worse, which is as the car gets connected and as people, I mean, what do people do as soon as they sit down in a car most of the time? They, they pull out their smartphone, right? So, so this is the trend. And then once you see this operating system installed, you just know it, it's kind of, it's going to be the pillar of the industry. And this is just widely underappreciated. And, and to be honest, by a lot of analysts, the formal ones, the, the traditional ones that I read, they, of course, they understand that the operating system is there. They're just obsessed about the current financials, which is, mm -hmm. hey, you guys are only making money per unit of the uh, operating system that you sell. But if you actually have your view in the long-term horizon, and, and you sort of, you, you take the company's current intentions to expand the monetization, monetization per unit with a bit of a kind sense, then you realize that the future is different. And again, going back to the idea of time horizon and stuff, I, I don't believe my estimates on BlackBerry to be perfect. And, and I may be very wrong here, but basically at the current valuations and given their presence in the auto sector and a couple of other ones together with their... Um, cybersecurity offering, this company is very asymmetric. So if, if actually this doesn't happen, this vision that I have for cars and BlackBerry, then I don't really lose much because the company is very poorly priced today. Okay, perfect, perfect. And you touched a little bit upon smartphones, which is uh, actually touching one of your other uh, picks, which is the digital turbine, ticker symbol apps. And to be completely honest, I was looking through the investor presentation uh, just before this interview and uh, it seems like this is very interesting gatekeeper, but I wasn't really able to even understand the company right from a high perspective during this, you know, very quick uh, 30 minute overview. Could you explain it in as simple term as possible? Yeah, sure. So when you when you buy a smartphone, mostly an Android, uh, it's going to come with all these apps installed. Right. So these the software that enables these apps to be installed. So this configuration that happens before it gets sold to you is actually enabled by um, digital turbines. So whether you are a uh, phone carrier or an actual OEM, and then you sell through retail to people, you're gonna put these apps, you're gonna configure the phone in a specific way. But this software is actually built and operated by um, apps, digital turbines, right? So, so basically, if you, if you make an app and you want new users, you're gonna go to digital turbine and say, hey, I want to be featured in this number of smartphones in this geographical location. And then they're going to say, okay, we'll do the deal. This is the price. So then you give Digital Turbine the money. Digital Turbine keeps a percentage of that money and actually pays the rest to the actual owners of the, of the uh, real estate of the smartphones, which are the, um, the OEMs and the phone carriers. Is that clear? Yeah, definitely. So what you're saying is basically that uh, there are different geographies, obviously. So sometimes when obviously we get the new phone, we don't realize that uh, in different parts of the world, it might look differently, work differently, yeah. with different areas. 
Yeah, correct. And, and it just depends on, on, on the actual, I mean, who you buy the phone from is going to have different preferences. So maybe they want you to see this app or they'd rather you have this other one and so forth. So, so actually, you know, the software that enables that is just digital turbines core offering. And so what the company is doing is once they have that on board, which is the trust of the OEMs and the phone carriers and stuff, they're sort of building a, a backend ad tech stack, which enables publishers and advertisers and stuff to just do everything inside the platform. So, uh, you know, it, it's basically an advertising business and the business is worthless if they are not actually essential to phone carriers and OEMs. And the nugget that I picked up, which is very interesting, is that both AT&T and Verizon seem to have been unable to operate their advertising business correctly. And phone carriers have two ways of making money, which is one, charging you for the bandwidth, and then two, uh, monetizing your data and selling that, which they do, by the way. And actually, mm. the public doesn't know this. Right? So if you look at AT&T, they had a programmatic ad platform called Shander. And, and Shander mm. is actually very good, and I'll tell you why. Because it was actually acquired by Microsoft, so AT&T offloaded this. And then Netflix recently, to fix their whole, their, their current financial profile, no, not this. They, um, they basically hired Microsoft to use Sander to run ads inside Netflix. So you, you can imagine that Netflix has a lot of technical talent and stuff. And why would they hire anyone else? Well, because it's actually very difficult to build a programmatic ad tech stack that scales through millions and millions of, of users, right? So they hired Microsoft because they own Sander. But, you know, AT&T has plenty of talent too, but they have to sell Sander. So actually what happens... And if you look at Verizon, there's a similar story. These companies are not actually able to run their own media businesses themselves. So that's why, and, and by the way, um, Digital Turbine is not a pick of mine, at least yet. I'm studying the company and I published a deep dive last month. Um, it's, what's happening is that Digital Turbine is actually more essential to phone carriers and OEMs than it would seem. But at least that's my intuition at the moment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because uh, the way I see it is that they are obviously facilitating that connection but uh, have you uh, figured out the reason why it's not done directly between the, the phone manufacturers and the different people that want to uh, advertise on the phones why there needs to be that middleman yeah because uh, it comes down to the complexity of running the programmatic so so look look at it this way if if you sell um, 500 million phones a year and you want to run an, an efficient profitable advertising business that's actually a lot of information going back and forth and it's very very complex and and just to, to give the audience some context if you just look at netflix and you look at the app it looks very simple it's like oh well it's just a video streaming app you just press a button and then you look at a video it's very simple but as infrastructures of these sorts scale it just gets immensely complex so mm. and and by the way this is something that i've not really peers through. It's not something I'm absolutely convinced. It's something I'm looking at. It's something I'm exploring. But it just looks like the, um, the, the ad tech stack required to programmatically serve ads profitably to hundreds of millions of people is very, very complex. And actually, mm-hmm. if you look at Spotify, and, and I, you know, my thesis, I've talked about this a lot. They, the, the, the part of the business that I think is going to take off in the coming five years, actually, is their advertising business. Because once you have people talking about all these subjects uh, through audio inside the app, there's really no difference between that 
and just people sharing text like Google. Right? It's just mm -hmm. people sharing information. And people talk about all these sorts of things and so different verticals form and different sub verticals within. And, and it just becomes this rich pool for advertising because you have people talking about all these things. So they're naturally interested to see things that um, correlate to what they're talking about, right? So if, if you see what Spotify is doing, firstly, it's growing the network very fast. Uh, and so that's very difficult at some. Um, what, they've, what they've been doing is um, acquiring other companies and integrating those acquisitions to build out their tech stack on their own. And actually, if you go back to the last quarterly call, the thing that Daniel X says is, hey, what's stopping our business right now is the amount of inventory that's available to um, advertisers. Meaning podcasts are going really fast and so forth, but we just, we just can't make this inventory available um, to advertisers yet. And you would think that it's actually quite simple. Just pay just the software and you know, pay and insert your ad, but it's not. It's actually very, very mm -hmm. difficult. So the, the, the things that I, the qualitative signals that I'm seeing throughout the, um, the, the, the um, ad tech space is that it's actually very, very difficult to operate um, mm -hmm. this kind of infrastructure. If you put together the, the data points of, you know, AT&T, Microsoft and Netflix, and then you see what Spotify is doing and, and you just see how phone carriers and OEMs are kind of folding to digital turbine system, then it's clear that the complexity is enough to warrant uh, specific companies that, that are very good at doing this. Mm -hmm. so, so I guess at, at this point, after your explanation, the, the, the way I see it is that obviously you have so, so many different players that the digital turbine uh, works as a, as a kind of node that is facilitating the, that connection. Uh, so, so all of the advertisers get in a sense on like a same, same system. Is that, is that the idea? Yeah, that's, that's exactly the idea. It becomes a platform where if, if you, um, if you, if you operate smartphone real estate, so if you sell smartphones in any way and you mm. want to make extra money from that, apart from selling it, then you just, uh, you basically submit these phones to digital, digital turbine and then digital turbine will help you make money, um, from the advertising business for a fee. That's all it is. And, and so. The, the, the second reason digital turbine is interesting is that it's it's building out this ecosystem behind that so extra offerings that actually enable it to to not only monetize the phone once right it enables it to monetize mm -hmm. it recurrently and more more so in nominal terms because it's adding all these verticals in the back and that's that's the thesis that i think underpins a lot of the investments that i think are going to be very well seen in 10 years time which is can you find a platform that's one underappreciated, uh, mm -hmm. two is actually very sticky and very strong and that's a lot of value and it's highly replaceable. And then three that is able to add cash rich verticals. So verticals that, uh, yield high free cash flow margins at a marginal cost. So looking at Spotify, uh, for instance, the music in the music business labels take 75% of the money. Right, but it's actually very sticky. People love the product. We're actually seeing an, an attention economy recession now and Spotify just keeps on growing and so forth. But they're actually able to, or currently have been able to successfully add verticals with completely different margin profiles. And just looking at the podcast one, podcasters, I mean, th there's no such scenario in which a label takes 75% of the money. It's just radically different. 
So as they continue to add verticals, it's going to become a very um, cash-rich business. And another example is Box. Box Inc., for instance, uh, is well known for security. So actually, most of the um, Fortune 500 companies hire Box just to safely store content. So mm -hmm. until recently, the market actually hasn't liked this business because it's seen it as a commodity, the, the idea of content management systems. It's actually very safe and it has a very strong moat because these companies really, really trust Box <clears throat> with their actual, one of their core assets, which is content. Again, going back to the idea of all companies do is process information to unlock novel ways of producing value and stuff. The, these blueprints, these new configurations are actually stored in content. So it's actually a very, very strong moat. And so what Box has been doing over the past couple of years is adding new verticals that just yield much better unit economics. And it's actually transforming the financial profile of the company. So I just see the strength across the board where you know you have a platform, as I was saying, that's underappreciated and so forth. It's actually very strong, highly replaceable, and is, is able, partly because of the culture inside the company, mm -hmm. their ability to experiment, face failure, uh, and actually share information transparently, able to add verticals that just tra financially transform the profile of the business. <clears throat> Okay, I see, I see. There was some amazing insight. So before before we wrap this up, I have one more question for you because obviously, you know, for people that, that listen all the way to this point, oh, yeah. uh, it's obvious that uh, your investing style is, is definitely very complex, I would say, very, you know, obviously hardcore research. So what would you maybe recommend to people either that uh, might want to uh, replicate your investment style Or alternatively, who would you recommend your investment style to? Well, I, I'd say that my investment style is just a result of pursuing my interests and then connecting the dots together. And, and fundamentally, what makes that possible is the art of capital allocation. So whatever interests you decide to pursue and however you want to connect the dots, what you have to do is make sure you get the, the fundamental art of capital allocation correct, as in don't buy high and sell low. You gotta, you gotta buy low and sell high. And, and that's fundamentally, if you want to make contrarian bets of this style, you just have to look at places where the market is depressed. Uh, and so, because I actually see this very frequently in retail investors like myself, we tend to be drawn towards the euphoria and the hype. And so when you're drawn towards the, euphor the, um, the hype and the euphoria and stuff, there's no real configuration that's going to enable you to return Uh, to obtain high returns or yield some kind of alpha. You really have to look at things your own way and make sure that you're not driven by um, enthusiasm, but rather by some fundamental insight that you've unlocked by pursuing your own interests in your own time. Definitely. That's very profound. And as I always say, right, uh, it's us who are pressing that buy or sell order. So it's sometimes a good idea to, you know, go to a beach, go for a run and, Uh, think about your portfolio with as much clear head as possible uh, to, you know try to eliminate maybe some of the fuss of, of, of the wall street of jim kramer or even the, the twitter obviously it's nice to be connected and understand what's happening in the market but when we are actually managing our portfolio it really needs to be as much clear cut as possible so perfect yeah, the, thank you antonio yeah. very much uh, do, do you have something to add No, no, just that. Thank you, Andre, very much for your time. It's been a real pleasure today. Awesome. Perfect. So uh, 
again, as I've mentioned, there will be a link to Antonio's Twitter, Substack, anything else? Uh, where can people find you, Antonio? No, just there. Um, I, I post all my stuff on Twitter and Substack. So that's it. Thank you very much, Andre. Okay. Thank you very much and take care for now. Thank you. You too. See you soon.